0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. It's still me. I'm still here. I have not been replaced with an AI yet. And today we've got two interviews with people whose media careers have been massively impacted in a good way by tech. They're also really good interviews. You will like them. First up is Nimish Patel, who spent years grinding out a career in comedy until he figured out TikTok. Really, TikTok sort of happened to him. And then things really took off, and now he's doing really well and making a lot of money. We've talked about how he's taken advantage of TikTok, how he programs for it, how he doesn't program for it, what it's like to live at the mercy of the algorithm. This is one I've wanted to do for a couple of years since I discovered Nimish Patel on TikTok, obviously. I'm really happy we got to do it. I think you will like it. And then I talked to someone who has been on the show before, Sam Hargrave. He used to be a stuntman in Marvel movies. Now he directs big budget, brutal action movies for Netflix. His new one is called Extraction Two. It's like Extraction One. If you like to see Chris Hemsworth kicking, punching, shooting, stabbing the crap out of people, this movie is for you, it was for me. The last time we talked to Hargrave was the pandemic and he wasn't sure what the future of movies would look like and he still isn't sure but he has certainly figured out how to make these things for Netflix. Um, this was a good catch-up as well. Okay, here's me and Nimish Patel. This is Recode Media Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm in studio with Nimish Patel. Nimish, how, how do I want to describe you? I, I, we, don't, we don't want to call you a TikTok comedian because you're a comedian comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian that has made a
2: stand-up touring career utilizing TikTok and social media.
1: Yeah, I, I had that experience with you. I, I got to TikTok, I feel like fairly late, like a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and you popped up in my feed. I'd never heard of you. I think your your handle was Finding Nemesh back Correct. in the time, back in the day. And you really, also the only comedian I saw. That Were you one of the first to do that? I don't know if I was one of the first, but uh, I felt like I was, I, I, I
2: slept on being an early adopter to all the other social media platforms, and by... Uh, life coincidence by a beautiful coincidence my wor- wife worked in social media at the time uh, as uh, in, an, in at an influencer marketing agency and she was like you got to get on tiktok did uh, you have to be convinced it took it took uh, uh and this is i'm sure the folly of a lot of husbands someone else to yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. to yeah. be like hey you should do it for me to be like oh my wife said the same thing maybe i should listen uh so this is like Mid-pandemic, you mm-hmm. know, like peak, June 2020, if I, I look back recently when my first post was. And it was just like, just to see what people were doing, I got on. I did some stupid parody of a, a Kanye West song, uh, Follow God. Um, and it was like, Jesus, I'm, Jesus is Lord. I said, Jesus, I'm bored. That's why I was on TikTok. And then a few months later, like I, I dropped it after that. But then a few months later, another comedian friend of mine, saw, uh, Sahib Singh, was like, utilizing it to put like all of his like sketches out there he's Mm -hmm. a stand-up but he's like really loves sketch acting that's how I heard of him someone showed me his shit and I was like oh okay and he said you should get on it I was like sure and I just started putting stand-up out and this was right when TikTok was still like very popular in India and my first clip got like 800,000 views or something and I was like what the what is this and you know, having done stand-up since 2009, having been at the cellar since 2016, um, like, I have this huge catalog of material that has never really gone anywhere. And so I had an editor. I was like, hey, chop all this stuff up. Let's see what I can put out on on this new platform. And I started putting stuff out and just – just kept feeding the machine to see like, and I was like every day like, oh shit, people are really
1: resonating with we're, this. We're so. going to get into the sort of chronology and I, I want to go over the mechanics of how you do it. Sure. Um, and also I should, I should, I got to pro- promote your, uh, your YouTube special, your publicist.
2: Please. My YouTube special is called Lucky Lefty. And then I'm also going on tour, a big theater tour this fall. It's called Fast and Loose Tour. I start in London at the Hackney Theater and I end in December, at the theater at Madison Square Garden, a little small venue, which I'm very, very much excited about. Uh, That's a very be, big deal. It'll be, yes, yeah. and it'll be none of the material you've seen on TikTok, none of the material you've seen on Instagram or anything like that, it's all new.
1: So you can watch the the, the special on YouTube, it's, yes. it's about your testicle.
2: Yes, I had testicular cancer uh, in February of 2022, and it just so happened that I had run out of material right before then. <laughs> And then God blessed me with uh, – With cancer. With cancer. Uh, and it was thankfully like very minute, so to speak, uh, and like in and out in, yeah. in five days total. Three business days, as I, watched I say. watched the special. Yeah, yeah. as okay. I say in the special. And, uh, and I, I got I knew 40, 45 minutes out of
1: it. You know? So we'll talk about all that. But just, just big picture because if, if people are coming to you for the first time and a lot of people are – yes you were a working comedian for a long time. And that's, uh, you know, I'm a comedy nerd. I know this sort of standard thing is you have to like put in a lot of time just to be competent. yeah. And generally doing that means you're also not making any money. Correct. And, but you were successful. <laughs> now it was your day job. You were doing it. Uh-huh. But then TikTok seems like just moved you to an entirely different stratosphere. Is that the correct story?
2: It's, uh yes, it's a stratosphere is uh, uh, a bit hyperbolic I uh-huh. think uh, but in terms of so from 20, 2009 to 2016 I was I had a day job uh, effectively had a day job you know interning making not a lot of money uh, working in finance because that's my I was a finance major at NYU um, and I graduated in 08 It's probably why I'm a comedian because that was the funniest thing you could do at the time mm-hmm. um, that's the great recession <laughs> yeah, you not know, yeah. good with history and uh, in 2015 Chris Rock saw me Told me I was funny. Three months later, I got a job writing for the Oscars, 2016, January. So that alone
1: should be like, oh, I've made it. Chris Rock saw me. He liked me. Yes. And he gave me a job.
2: That was definitely a personal I've made it moment. But from a monetary perspective, it was not, right? It's not like once you get a writing job at the Oscars, you get every writing job there is. But it opens a door, right? It opens a door in the sense that people know you a little bit more, um, which was great. And uh, And also, Chris Rock tapped you, right? It will be... Yes, it will be on my tombstone that Chris Rock told me I was funny. Like, here lies Nimesh Patel, right? But after that happened, once I got that writing job, my finance job was coincidentally ending at the same time. And then I had to make that decision. It took me a few months to effectively make the decision, like, I'm going to do comedy full time. And I got a, a few writing jobs. I got a uh, uh, pass at the cellar. And Don't I, tell people
1: what pass at the cellar means.
2: Meaning, I auditioned at the Comedy Cellar, um, famous in, club in New York, in New York City, and uh, I was allowed to then perform there. And when that happened, the Cellar was also having this. Um, Comedy Central was doing stuff with the Cellar, and I was I had random gigs and and jobs would pop up that would afford me rent and food,
1: and which again, uh, <laughs> great because that's yeah. a lot of people. That's their main aspiration: is can I can I cover my bills doing this thing that I like? Exactly that I love.
2: And uh, you know, I got a few other jobs after that. You know, I was a producer at Full Frontal with Sam B. I was SNL for a year. You were a writer there, right? A writer there, yes. Um, on Weekend Update, I got. I was writing for a little late with Lily Singh um, during November, from November 2020 to March
1: 2021. Did it feel like a great trajectory? It sounds like a great trajectory. These are all shows people have heard of. These are writing jobs. These are things that most people in the world would, most comedians would love to do, but can't get those gigs. It,
2: I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've been afforded, and they've all led me to where I'm at. Uh, in the in in the moments of like, I don't have a job, I was very much like, what the fuck is going on? But I always had stand-up as a thing I could be doing. And that was like, and remains an outlet for any stressor, whether it be subconscious or conscious, for me to talk about um, and release whatever's going on in my head. But in November 2020, I was writing at Lily Singh, and I felt very comfortable with my job in the sense I was like, man, I am feel like I'm doing very good stuff here, um, uh, and now I, I have a little more money so that I could dedicate to an editor who can help me put stuff out, and, and I could have fun with what I'm doing, and I kind of relinquished control of the stand-up, because you know, what I give credit to Andrew Schultz for the most and is that he kind of demonstrated that there's no real need to be precious with your material. This is a
1: comedian. It's a, my audience may not pick up on it.
2: Oh, another another pioneer in the yep. space. Uh, one of the... Uh, uh, an arena act these days, but started, you know, like the rest of there's us a, in the clubs. Right,
1: and, a crop of you guys now, and this existed before, but it seems like there's a new wave of you guys that yeah. have figured out, we know how to use YouTube and now TikTok, Instagram. We can build audiences there mm-hmm. that can... They will, And then those audiences will show up and pay real money to yes. see us perform. Exactly. Which was always kind of the dream, but it seemed like it didn't pan out for an earlier generation. I think uh, a lot of us have been lucky,
2: and uh, we've been playing with skills. You can play with skills, good luck will happen, as Jay-Z says. And so November 2020, so it was like, put yourself on TikTok. I started putting stuff on TikTok. I got a lot of views, um, on, and I had a huge catalog of material. This is stuff
1: of you performing at the cellar and other places. At the
2: cellar, you know, wherever I performed. A lot of it was the cellar. I taped my first special, more of a mixtape, but called Jokes for Quarantine. um, That got like, that accelerated my YouTube page during pandemic. Um, And I chopped that up and I put that out because it was like filmed at the cellar. Very good material. Airtight. Looked great. Put it out. Come March 2021... I had, And now I'm going to get into mechanics and, and the numbers of it all.
1: So you're, you, you're finding success on TikTok, success on YouTube. Be- success being – People are watching. People are watching. But it, you, it's the pandemic. You can't tour. You can't monetize. But exactly.
2: That. You know, YouTube, I fell into this trap like in mid-pandemic again, like June 2020, March – or uh, July 2020 where like I had two or three videos on YouTube that did like crazy numbers. What's a crazy number? roughly uh like probably one or two million views Uh but revenue wise because it was an election year an election season my political stuff which i had a lot of was seeing like outsized returns i was seeing like you know five thousand dollars a video in in in, like a month or two which is an insane amount of money per video i wasn't doing that across all my videos i made maybe like in one month and this is like as i've never reached this number again since i made like 10 grand which, for me at the time, as someone who was like struggling, like oh shit, I'm living in a one bedroom, but like life is tough right now. I'm collecting an employment here and there. I was like, oh man, here it is, this you is cracked it. ticket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that fell off a cliff like after a month or two, but that made me realize there's there's money to be had here. I wish I could have replicated that success with that, but it just made me realize okay, maybe I should be focusing my energies here. November 2020, TikTok, March 2021. My Lily Singh job ends, but I have two or three tour dates from pandemic that had been rescheduled, mm-hmm. and and things are starting to open up. And things are starting to open up again. And I said, I thought to myself, like, people are leaving comments, like, "Hey, when are you coming here? Come to Texas. Come to Houston. Come to San Antonio." Because they've to- only experienced you online. Exactly. Uh, people are saying, "Hey, why don't you come to you know Chicago, whatever?" And I had. Two or three tour dates already lined up at the spot in Houston, Comedy Hub in Houston. And it's like a 70-person room. And I put it out on TikTok. Hey, I'm going to be in this city. Uh, and I put in the text, I'm going to be in Houston. Mm-hmm. Like on the on-screen text. And I saw a flood of people. I'm like, when are you coming to Houston? Like people didn't know how to read that I was coming there. But they, where do we get tickets for Houston? hmm And I realized, however anecdotal this is, I don't know if this is bona fide, what's it called, algorithm technique, but I realized that if I were to say I'm going to be in Houston, this video might be being delivered to people in Houston. Mm -hmm. And I pointed to a ticket link, and those tickets started moving like fire. And I realized, oh, snap, there might be a real thing here, because I went from from having to do a one- 70-person show, which is what I had booked for. 170 or 70? 70 people. You were performing for 70 people. I was going to be. Mm -hmm. But we started seeing so much demand that I moved to four 200-person shows. So I went from doing 70 people to 800 people um, in a matter of a month or two. Solely from TikTok. Solely from TikTok. And I told my manager, I was like, hey, I think this is something. Let's see if we can't line up a date around Houston or like in San Antonio or Dallas or something that we might be able to con- test this thesis mm-hmm. of if I put Dallas, Dallas, yeah. I can sell tickets in Dallas. We booked the Dallas Improv on Ramadan and we sold it out on a Wednesday night using
1: TikTok. And I was like, oh, shit. This, so this is, is the light bulb. This is, this is a real thing. Because you went through this with YouTube where you had these huge hits, mm-hmm. made you money, mm-hmm. and then it fell off. Mm-hmm. Did you think, oh, this is different this time? This one is going to sustain? Or this exact same thing could happen? The algorithm could move around?
2: I was was constantly afraid of the algorithm. We still remain slaves to the algorithm. Um, And the dream is to not have to be a slave to the algorithm. But I'm not there yet. But at the time, I was like, I can't think about what potential failures lie ahead. I have to remain focused on this is something that's happening for real. Let's see if I can't. Uh, strike while this iron's hot. My manager reached out to an agent. We got ourselves an agent, and we lined up all these kind of off nights. Because when you're starting out, quote-unquote, as a touring comedian, which is what I was doing, granted, i have been working for 10 years, 11 years at the but point. But you hadn't been touring, but I'd been touring at this level. It. Right. You know, these, these clubs need to see if you can actually draw. So they would give me, like, a Tuesday night, an off night, and I would sell it out. It the prime are Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Right. Yeah. And they were like, "Oh shit, he can sell out a Tuesday w- with just his crowd. That means weekends when we utilize our full list and more people are willing to come out, he'll 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 draw." And so that was the first year of it, uh, where I was doing mostly one nighters. I would do a string of like thirteen in a row or something like that, something ridiculous.
1: I remember hearing the comedians in particular like did really well post pandemic because. People were were pent up. They yes. hadn't been able to do anything. You guys can travel light. It's just mm. you, usually, right? Yep. I had a I had my uh, uh, good friend and opener and
2: guy who directed my last special, Lucky Lefty Mookie Thompson, with me uh, for a lot of the dates, um, and we were just just like in awe of the fact that w- what was going on. It was just like what? How are the pe-? like it's crazy? People are showing up, and every time I would ask who's here, why are you here, people would yell out TikTok. You
1: went from unknown to. People coming to see you yes. uh, because of TikTok, right. and again, we my brain would go, "Well, this can't last. Mm-hmm. This, this is this post pandemic thing, and and it's going to tap out."
2: Yeah, and in my head, it still feels that way. Like I'm still like running from the the sickle of TikTok death, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I've tried to diversify my distribution in terms of using TikTok to get Instagram, Instagram to do YouTube, and. You know, because of those businesses, you know, competing with each other, I've been able to proliferate on Instagram, and I've been able to utilize YouTube Shorts and, and YouTube. The reason I didn't use YouTube long form was because I don't like putting out very long sets. You know, because that's where the, the small ones are coming from, and a lot of the stuff I was using on TikTok and Instagram and uh, YouTube Shorts remains old material or Crowdwork stuff.
1: To explain what crowd work is. For crowd work
2: being like, I'm talking to some something crazy happens mm-hmm. in the audience, or usually when I'm doing crowd work, it's not to generate crowd work moment. It's because I'm pivoting into material, and I like the audience it. is
1: interacting with you. Yes. They're yelling something at you, or you're picking you're picking on them, or whatever it is. And it's exactly.
2: Fun. and for better or for worse, you know, it's something I've uh, engendered in the audience because of that's how they came to know me you know you're like TikTok song with the guy that yeah, oh, like says something smart ass to some person in the crowd and destroyed them or he got destroyed whatever mm-hmm. it is and so that that feeling is is created and that's what i put out because i don't want to give away material and then once i'm done with the material then i'll release it and that those videos would do whatever
1: how much diligence and and thought are you putting into i'm putting in this clip i think this clip is going to do well mm-hmm. or i'm going to test four different kinds of interactions, four different kinds of clips. See how they perform. Maybe this kind of thing does better in a, um, for a certain audience that I want to want to reach in Houston or Minneapolis or wherever. I think uh I haven't I
2: haven't been that for better or for worse again. Like I haven't been that judicious with,
1: Just drop it in and see
2: what happens. Yeah, it's more when I started it was like let's play this numbers game and just Shoot as much as I can, mm-hmm. right? Like flood the market with whatever I got. Some won't hit, some will hit. It's almost like the venture capital model, like one to ten. You know, it's like something will carry this boat to the next level, kind of.
1: There's this is a little well, it's all inside, but um, I've heard, I've heard, I heard you on uh, on my colleague Jesse Fox's show. Yes, uh, and he was saying, you know, there's this like bias that I hear from comedians about. Don't put crowd work on your videos. That's hacky. Mm-hmm. I don't really get it because it's funny. So I don't understand why people wouldn't like it. Well, what's, what's the bias in comedy about, I, about doing that? I, I,
2: I understand the gripe a lot of comics have about putting crowd work out. Um, I myself maintain some of those same gripes because ultimately I'm working towards building an hour or 45 minutes, 30 minutes of like straight Scripted jokes. jokes. Of, of jokes that I've worked on and crafted and what have you. And so when I hear the negative feedback of it's just crowd work, is hacky bullshit. It's like yes, I if you're if you don't know me as a comic, or if you don't know if you're a layman or someone who's a comedy fan, yeah. if some of the comedy fans understand that crowd work just happens, but the show is very different, right? The it's, show, considered,
1: it's considered less than
2: though. Yes, from a uh, uh, well, I mean I don't know, like some comedy fans are like, man, that those quips you have, you're. Mm-hmm wicked fast with how you deliver stuff other people comics are like like where are your jokes and it's like the jokes are there they're just and you even said you
1: had people showing up at the shows going you're the you're the guy who's going to yell at me right right which i guess can cut both ways
2: i i've i do my best to at the shows mitigate that right like the special the first one thank you china was called thank you china because everyone came from tiktok Mm -hmm. right But what you don't see in the special, what you only see at the live shows is me relaying to the crowd like, hey, I know why you guys are here and how you come. And you'll get some of that. I will fuck with some of you. I will talk to some of you. But that's not what the show is. You know, it's not an hour of just, hey, that shirt is stupid. Oh, you're in love with your mom. It's none of that. If it happens organically, Sure. Because some of the material dictates that I do talk to the crowd. Do you think those people who are coming to you are, are new to comedy? Or are they... A lot of them. And I, I love that. Yeah. First time comedy people. Like I ask every show who's here for the first time? Whose first comedy show ever is this? Who has no idea who I am and you're just here because your friend dragged you? Those are the people that I'm like, like aiming to win over. And, and I know that if I was just going to do an hour of crowd work, which I could do. I would be doing comedy as an art form of disservice because to me, like, I did not fall in love with comedy because of someone at a, being at a club and seeing, like, someone fuck with somebody. I do that all the time. Like, I'm at lunch with my yeah. high school friends. I could fuck around, and I, I'm doing crowd work. I fell in love with comedy because I saw Chris Rock do Bigger and Blacker, and I was like, that's the funniest shit I've ever seen. And I saw Russell Peters... Master the art of making it seem like he's having a conversation, but really he's just waiting to get into what he wants to talk about.
1: You're Indian American. I know it, uh, when I've seen your your clips, there's you're drawing an Indian American audience. Mm-hmm. Is that something you're consciously trying to do, or that just happens organically? And how is that a, is that a good thing? Is it a mixed thing?
2: One of my biggest points of pride is having a very diverse audience. When I started, when I started, you know, Houston and, and Dallas. They are heavily Indian populated places, and yet the crowds were very, very mixed. Like it, like from age to race mm-hmm. to everything in between that you could classify someone in. It was a very diverse room, um, and I think that was a function of the cities, but also a function of the fact that my material is not necessarily like this is what it's like to be Indian, you know? Because Russell
1: it, Peters, you mentioned huge, huge stand-up. Uh huh. Most white people have never heard of him. Yeah, he he has a really specific Indian audience. uh It's worked out really well for him. uh Have you thought about like, I could lean into this and I could I could these could be my people and I will always have this audience.
2: I let the material and what I'm talking about dictate what the audience is going to be right now. I'm talking about Indian stuff, but I'm also talking about going to therapy. I'm talking about politics. I'm talking about everything. And so it's like, if it's for you, it's for you. Come to the show. To me, I think it's uh, it's doing myself and comedy a disservice if I, and and the and really like you're judging Indian crowds in a way they should not be judged in the sense it's like Indian people think about a lot more stuff than just being Indian you know it's like sometimes I'll get a fan or two that's like you don't do any Indian material I'm like and my response to that is like everything I say is Indian literally everything I do is Indian. You know, this conversation is an Indian conversation. Mm-hmm. So so that it, it's been conscious. It's been a conscious decision to be like, I'm not gonna lead into all the Indian stuff. But I've definitely talked about it. Thank you, China, and Lucky Lefty both have mentions of, of growing up Indian. This next hour is gonna be talking about being Indian in the context of therapy and politics and all of that. I've had 18 year olds at shows uh who have never seen comedy before, and like, we love that one clip you did. We want to come see you. And I've made new fans out of 18 year olds. There was, I did New Brunswick, New Jersey this past weekend. There was a, I want to say 70 year old Indian American woman up front who was a brand new fan. You know, last time I did Stress Factory, there was a 62 year old white woman who was an executive at Microsoft who brought her daughter to come see me. And it's like, that the gamut is so big um and the comedy is so i don't know i don't know what the word is for it but it hits some of it hits somebody all the time and that's what the goal is for me it's like how do i hit as many people as possible how do i keep expanding the pool some of the stuff is going to hit Indian people specifically they'll come out they'll be hit then they'll get hit with the Mm -hmm. politics stuff some people will hit the politics stuff they'll come out they'll be hit with this was like to be other in this country. Are there
1: parts of the country you have not cracked?
2: No, I've I've been I've been to seventy cities in America. Um, every place has been an amazing kind of uh, show. of People that come out. I think where I was in Appleton, Wisconsin, last year, and I don't know if you ever been to Appleton, Wisconsin. I've driven by it. It is an awesome town. Uh, just judging off the people that were in the crowd, like immigrants from. Uh, Somalia like everybody was in the crowd and I was like what the fuck is this is like a witness protection town you know (laughs) like (laughs) like everyone had just disappeared to Appleton Wisconsin and that was one of those moments where I was like sold out on a Wednesday I think 300 people 250 people the most diverse interesting group of people I've I've encountered and if that uh, that spoke to me like I could do any place in this country
1: Do you feel like you are there's a window here and you have to exploit it and you got to go as fast as you can? You got to wring everything out, or Mm. you think actually the best way to do this is to go long term and build and not race to every city and and try to maximize what I can do now.
2: Well, you know, the short answer is uh, both, right? Like I'm very cognizant that there there is a window of opportunity here, and I do got to strike while the iron's hot. Like those phrases exist because those things happen. That being said, I've been in comedy for 14 years now. There's no way this is not a long-term thing, right? I am committed to this. I'm doing theaters this uh, fall. But if that doesn't pan out and I got to go back to doing clubs, so to speak. Because that's the, the levels, right? You go you go from
1: clubs to theaters and stadiums. Clubs to theaters
2: to arenas yeah. to, you know, uh, complaining that uh, you're not doing movies. Then, yeah, yeah.
1: And when you start out, right, people aren't coming to see you at all. They're just – you're just showing up and they happen to show up. Exactly.
2: Well, when I started, that's a, that's I've been lucky in the sense that, you know, when my stand-up touring career, so to speak, started, which I count as March 2021, it was fans. It was almost from the jump fans, right? Because these people that see me on social media were here to check you out. And now I think I have a core dedicated fan base where if I were to fall back into the club world, which I will because that's where you – thats clubs are where my heart is. It's where the gym is. It's where you're working out and putting in that work. I'm hopeful and, and confident that I could go back to that and still, like, maintain a, a, a life and, and work really hard and
1: maintain a career doing that. So like I was saying, you were just in my feed for a long time. And, yeah. And I don't think I liked you or – I mean, obviously, <laughs> I watched you. I mean, I did like you, but I didn't, like, tell TikTok, yeah. give me more of this. But, you know, they see what you're watching and they give you more of it. Uh-huh. And then one day, like, I noticed like, I haven't seen Nemesh for a long time. Uh-huh. and I thought maybe he's not doing – and I, I looked and you were still doing – and once you go to look for it, it, it then regurg—it starts spitting it back out again. Uh-huh. Does that – do you have anxiety about, about not being able to control what TikTok serves to someone like me who wants to see you? It's, uh,
2: it's definitely an anxiety in the sense of, like, I look at the numbers and I'm like, what happened? And then I'm like, I try to make sense of it. The anxiety comes from me like not being able to tell myself, stop looking at the shit. It's more like I know that it's out of my control, and that I could do what I can, whether it be changing material up, the, the 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 actual delivery of the the clip itself. I could fuck with it, tweak it, whatever. But at the end of the day, I don't control TikTok. I don't control any algorithm. I can try to game it and try to figure out what's going on, but it took a long time for me to, and I still have uh, trouble releasing that control. But when I started, I was definitely like going to sleep, thinking about it, waking up thinking about it um, to the point where I was like, okay, I need to hire a team to do it all because I, I can no and longer. Is come. that what's happening now? You got people? I, I, had, I hired a team in September of 2021.
1: How many folks are working for you?
2: Uh, I'm trying to think of like, uh, it's one team and they, they're like a, a company and then currently have an editor. Um, who does all like the
1: captioning and all that kind of what stuff? What do you What do you think you're spending per per year putting your stuff out? <laughs> uh,
2: it's It's mid five figures
1: for sure. That's uh, real money, if not more. Yeah, no, it's a lot. Um, and then it comes back because people come to see you.
2: Ideally, yeah, a marketing have, Marketing spend is a uh, uh, is a huge part of it. But you know, I wouldn't be here without it. So.
1: Have you ever thought about? Well, I'm sure you have. Is there a way for you to make money directly from the platforms? advertising Uh, your youtube special i just watched it's free um have you thought about trying to sell stuff directly there
2: well i mean the thing is like i would love to be a guy that's sponsored by you know whoever but brands are still very weary of a comedian who is not necessarily like above reproach or who is so big they can do whatever um, and say whatever they want and still have it not be a net negative impact on their bottom line right? Like, I think I would be a great match for Nike or Kith or whoever. But, you're wearing, you know, we're in the Nikes, today. Wearing my yeah, Nikes right now. I got my Kith uh, t-shirt born and raised, shout out born and raised streetwear brand in LA. But like, I understand that th- these people have their marketing lines to consider as well. And I would love to be sponsored by them. But at the end of the day, like, I'm not going to change what I who I am or what I say because I'm trying to get money out of these places. You know, like Microsoft, if you want to holler at me, feel free. Like I will sing the praises of uh, ChatGPT to everyone, anyone that wants to listen. And I get a lot of people that come out to my shows, diverse. Yeah. And uh, people who would use your
1: products. Well, you know? It's 2023. I have to ask you an A.I. question. Do you Please? is that going to affect your work? Do you think about your your jokes showing up repurposed somewhere <laughs> else? Do you use AI to to think through material?
2: I can't worry about how uh, ChatGPT will or AI will utilize stuff that I put out there, right? Like, I think I, well, the other night I got super high and like I was like, "What if like What if they use my voice and my mm-hmm. face and my likelihood to make uh, me saying something crazy?" And it's like I that there's a likelihood that might happen. You know, they using yep. Rogan's voice to do crazy shit. I can't. Control that um, any more than I can. Right, I, I don't know what to. Maybe I could put cease and desist things in order. But at the end of the day, like that shit's gonna is happen. Is
1: there any upside to you for AI?
2: Can you use it? I've definitely utilized AI to outline and clean up like my notes. Uh, like I can, you can put like a shit ton in. Be like, hey, structure this for me, or like put all the put it all in bullet points for, for me.
1: Just for jokes. Yes, for yeah. jokes.
2: Right. Like it's definitely a great structuring thing, but it is not at a point where it's like. This is a joke you should say on stage, you know. And yeah. part of me is just like artistically, like I don't give a fuck about what a robot has to say. Mm-hmm. I've definitely inputted like, hey, give me a joke about this, and then like, what? That's a joke AI. <laughs> like, are you I've kidding been, me? I've
1: been talking to writers who use it, and it'll generate a hundred bad ideas. Yes, and they say that's great, but I can take one of those and improve it, mm-hmm. and now it's a good idea.
2: Yes, for sure. That that definitely exists. Um, that's definitely an area that I would like to use. AI for but to rely on it to write jokes and all that that for me as an artist like it's like why that, that kind of defeats the purpose I have a joke about ChatGPT GPT on the internet I'm not sure if you've seen it no about uh people ask like hey would chat GPT uh, impact comedy and the truth is yes it will because ChatGPT GPT can at some point will definitely be able to write monologue jokes and topical jokes so stand-up will become very personal Right? Like, that's the truth of it. Stand up will only become personal because ChatGPT could never write a joke about something like being molested. You know, that requires a human touch. And, well, oh, oh, yes, 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 yes. Who's uh, That's Pam. Oh, it's Pam. Hey, Pam. Uh, uh, <laughs> I did use ChatGPT to uh, review my special, Review Lucky Lefty. I put input all of Jason Zinneman's, Jason Zinneman, the uh, com- comedy critic on of New, New York Times. Times yeah. And I had. I put all of his uh, past, like a lot of his past special reviews into into ChatGPT, and I put all the specials that he had reviewed, like their, uh, what's it called, their actual jokes into ChatGPT, so it would learn like who he was and how he reviewed stuff. And then I put my special into ChatGPT and said, go ahead and write a review. And it wrote this very flowery, amazing review. Thank you, Jason Zinneman, ChatGPT, for that amazing review. Uh, it's on my Instagram. Uh, but yeah, so I've used it in that in that sense as like kind of jokey stuff, um, and it's it's been fun. Where
1: do you where do you think? Oh, that's a stupid question. I want to ask that. What what is your aspiration? Is is you want to keep doing this the rest of your life? You want to get bigger and bigger venues. Uh, do you want to be an actor What, what what do you what's what's your ideal career arc right
2: now the ideal career arc is uh i get to do what i'm doing right now um at a point where if i wanted to hit print on a theater tour um i could right now it's like very hard to sell theaters um theaters how many people roughly you know, a thousand to three thousand people. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. You know, a lot of marketing goes into it. You got to do podcasts. You know, all that kind of stuff. But I want to get to a point where I can hit Control P on a three month run, do it exactly how I want, and then go to sleep, kind of thing. And then do whatever else I want to be doing. You know, like I would love to. You know, I wrote uh, working and writing a movie, pitching a movie. You know, unfortunately, there's a riot strike going on, mm-hmm. so can't really do that. Um, my own show would be awesome right now I'm just taking it as it comes. You know, I have, uh, you know, comedy in itself was something I kind of fell into. It's not like I didn't want to be a comedian since I was six. You know, a lot of people have these stories. Like and I had dreamed of being a comedian. 2009, unemployed, underemployed, took a writing class at NYU, did not like it. it was like this shit is corny. What do I like to do? I like making people laugh. What am I good at? I have no stage fright. Let's go on stage. And then that, I, and
1: it was the... How long were you doing comedy before you said, this is actually what I am doing, as opposed to I'm doing this, but maybe one day I'll go back. I'll get a finance job. Like I was Day before. one. Day one. Day one, it
2: was uh, the arrogance of ignorance. I had no idea what I was getting into. I thought this shit would be easy, uh, honestly. And you know, I was like, I, I had a chip on my shoulder from not becoming a finance guy. I thought, I'm smart, at least I think. Uh, at least I've been told that my whole life uh, that I'm smart. Here, you know, I graduated from NYU, so I'm not dumb. Um, let's see what I can make happen. And a lot of, a lot of, so many rejections and no's and punches in the face, uh, uh, ego deflations along the way
1: in the last 14 years. Um, are yeah. you in touch with the, the NYU folks who were doing finance with you when you graduated? All of them are millionaires. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I just got a text from one the other day. I was like, "Hey, so when do you want to come out to the Hamptons for the weekend to our house?" I'm like, "Jesus Christ, bro! What? What, what am I doing?" <laughs> you know, uh, but I'm having fun. <clears throat>
1: and are they jealous of you? Like, oh, you got a maid, you get to, you no, get no, to do that? No, no. no. They, they understand. They, they have fucking love finance. <laughs> they are. They are.
2: I don't even know if they're jealous. They're just like, "Oh, that's a cool life you get to live." But these guys are, you know,
1: they have Hamptons houses.
2: They have Hamptons houses, but beyond that, it's not even about the monetary return. It's like some, like my friends just love learning companies and understanding the ins and outs and knowing how the world works. Like, I think I know how the world works from a very high level perspective. Money is everything kind of. These guys are money, you know, like they're in and out of the world. They they see like, how does a flood in Thailand impact uh, Nimesh's day to day? They'll know. You know, it's like that, that to me is like a level of cool and interesting that. I. But they don't know how
1: to run TikTok, so.
2: <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure they'd figure it out and be like, this is nonsense. <laughs> Nimesh Patel, is
1: awesome to meet you. Thank you very much for Congrats having me. Congrats on your success. Good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. I need a lot of it. Thank you. Thanks again to Nimesh. Delighted to talk to him. He also taught me that, uh, that headphones make you warm when you wear them, which I've been wearing them for years. It never occurred to me uh, that that is true, but now I can't stop thinking about it. Next up, Sam Hargrave, but first, a word from a sponsor.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S Y L V A N 29.com.
1: I want you guys to remember three years ago, it was COVID, it was lockdown, and there was a super violent, super entertaining movie called Extraction. Starring Chris Hemsworth, it became Netflix's most popular movie ever. And when that happened, I talked to stuntman-turned-director Sam Hargraves about how that came to be and what movies might look like in the future. Now, Extraction 2, also super violent, also super entertaining, is out. It's also incredibly popular, so I wanted to talk to Sam again. Welcome back, Sam Hargrave. Thanks for having me. Um, Thanks for joining me. I was looking at some press clippings from you. It sounds like even when you and I were talking three years
3: ago, you knew there was going to be an extraction too. Was that a foregone conclusion? At the time we spoke, we we knew, but the getting a second movie while shooting the first was not because originally this character died at the end of the movie. That was the script that I signed on to direct. It felt like the right arc for the character. Uh-huh. So, you know, a beautiful redemption story. And then as the footage came in and Netflix and Agbo were reviewing and it started to Be very popular internally, and they started to say, Hey, we might have something here. The idea for a sequel started to, you know, grow. It wasn't until we fully experienced the overwhelmingly positive. Uh, response from audiences that it was 100% a sure thing, and then you know, the rest is history.
1: Extraction was your first movie. Like I mentioned, you're a former stuntman. Uh, you used to be Chris Evans in, in various Marvel movies. Uh, yeah. when was, sorry, Captain America, you, you were Chris Evans's double there, right? right um, right. you've done a lot of punching and fighting. I think you still do some of that on screen occasionally mm-hmm. as a cameo. When you're doing a sequel like this, what is the directive? Is it Do everything you like did before make it bigger make it more it's already that was already a pretty extreme movie is is the idea that people just want more you can't just deliver
3: the same version of the same thing you did before the challenge with any sequel is giving the audience what it was they enjoyed about the first movie but in a different way you can't just give them the same movie over again because mm-hmm. it, obviously it'll just be a copy, but you can't stray so far away from the DNA that made it enjoyable that people go, what is this? Why am I watching this? It's not what I signed on for. So yeah, bigger and better is the, the cliche version yeah. of what you want from a sequel. Our goal was to deliver on more exciting action just to push the stunt element even further than we did with the first movie, but also to try and dive a little deeper into the emotional core of these characters is because people enjoyed that about the first one. And there was, you know, there's the tip of the iceberg about this character is like one or two scenes where we get yeah. to know about his emotional past. So we're like, Hey, let's explore that a little more deeply in this movie.
1: Yeah. I noticed you had more character. There was, there's still a ton of kicking and punching and killing. Um, yeah. But occasionally in between the characters talk to each other about how they feel. <laughs>
3: yeah. We, we, we tried to sprinkle it in there so that it wasn't just from start to finish action. Although there is, You're right. A lot of it.
1: I don't know if it's just the way I'm looking at Netflix marketing, but it seems like you guys this time around have really leaned into telling audiences, hey, not only is there's lots of great stuff in here, but we're going to tell you specifically about this 22 minute fight scene on a train and there's real helicopters. And Cripps Hensworth is really holding a giant gun here and putting himself in danger, yeah. Were you thinking from the get-go that, that you needed bigger set pieces and also that you needed to tell
3: people about that as part of sort of the the process? Or does that come after the fact? That kind of came after the fact. It's interesting that you bring that up because the first movie, a lot of popularity was found in behind-the-scenes videos. Like, there's viral videos of me strapped to the hood of a car, cr- you know, crashing around mm-hmm. and, and chasing actors all over the screen. Or, sorry, all over the sets that goes on screen. So for this one, it was it was just about, for me, pushing the envelope and trying to uh, challenge myself as a director and a storyteller. And yeah, that led to some pretty intense behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, and then part of the telling of that one shot, the extraction in real time, became, wow, it's almost two twice as long as the first one, and there's real elements, and it became, it's really the DNA of this franchise, doing real stunts for real with real actors in real locations. And so I think that lent itself to a pretty cool marketing campaign. Because it reminds me, and I hope you see this as a
1: positive comparison to the Mission Impossible movies where a big to be mentioned
3: in the same sentence is an honor and i'll take
1: it i figured you would take it but a big part of the marketing now for years has been tom cruise is really strapping himself onto a plane tom cruise really hurt himself tom cruise did a halo jump a hundred times and also uh when top gun 2 came out there was a bit if you went and saw it in the theater tom cruise came out and said we're really in planes here and a lot of it seems to be look this is not siege of course there's computer graphics in here. But this is real right. people doing real things. And it seems like that's either tapping into a, a real interest or a perceived interest from audiences that want to see real people
3: doing real things. I think it's a real interest. I think it's it's a bit of a tapping into a an innate human ability to tell the difference between real and CG at this moment. Who mm-hmm. knows? Give it 10 years and AI, we may not be able to know the difference and we're all screwed. But at this stage in the filmmaking game, there is a difference. It's tangible. You might now be able to point it out. Like the general viewer might not go, that plane's real, that plane's fake, that's green screen. But I believe you can intuitively feel it. So when you see a real stunt performer or Tom Cruise or Chris Hemsworth doing these stunts for real, you feel something different because there's this empathetic connection between humans, and you go, This person is really in danger. And so your adrenaline spikes. You get this rush that you don't get from going, Ah, he's just on a green screen. It's comfortable in there, and craft services right around the corner.
1: There's a there's a lot of industry hand-wringing about, you know, problems with the Marvel movies and, and a lot of a lot of the superhero movies in general and all kinds of speculation about what why that is and a lot of it's mm. about story, etc. To me, I'm thinking maybe there's just a lot of people going, I've seen stuff with green screens for a long time and I know what it looks like when two characters that are completely animated essentially are mm-hmm. fighting and I like to see John Wick or Chris Hemsworth kick the crap or get the crap
3: kicked out of them and I, I feel that. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a response. Part of it, there's been a saturation of CG heavy movies, and Marvel is is partly responsible for that. And Leslie, I guess I'm partly responsible yeah, since congrats. I've done a lot of those movies. But I think that you know it's interesting because that form of story, those stories, would not have been able to have been told as effectively ten, fifteen years ago. So the advancement of CGI technology is amazing because the, those movies, you know, in Avengers endgame is like one of the most popular movies of all time just based on box office so there is a desire for those stories also but then because of that you say oh that one was successful now all of ours need to be big cg heavy things it's kind of jumping on the bandwagon and you Mm -hmm. get a little bit of saturation and so to have kind of a breath of fresh air in the action space so to speak like the mission impossibles the john wicks the, the hopefully extraction where people appreciate the, the beauty and art form of the stunt performing that the actors are doing, that the stunt men are doing, and, and women, I think that's a breath of fresh air, and people feel the stakes. There is a difference.
1: Like I said in the intro, when we were talking three years ago, it was lockdown, and there was a lot of debate about uh, how are movies going to get made in the future? If they have got to be six feet apart, how do you get hundreds of people on a set to work together? And then yeah. a big fundamental question about are you going to see a movie in a theater again, and what kind of movies are going to get made? Um, how did COVID affect... How you made the movie, and then uh, did you think at all
3: about how it would affect the rollout? It greatly affected how we made the film. We originally were, were we started prepping the movie in Australia, and because of COVID and the, the restrictions that we faced and the the challenges, we left Australia and went to Prague, Czech Republic, and Vienna, and we still had, I mean. Hundreds of cases. I mean, it shut us down a number of times. We had to change schedules. You know, an actor would be up for a scene that, you know, the next day and Mm -hmm. they go down with, and then you have to change your schedule. So it really heavily affected us. So it was very difficult to make the movie under those circumstances. We're not the only movie that had to deal with all that, but, you know, and we persevered and overcame the obstacles, but it completely changed the approach and it it affected us in a very meaningful ways. But the rollout, I mean, you know, the, I think Tom Cruise. Yeah. It was obviously always going to be a Netflix movie designed to be watched at home. 100%. Yeah. Netflix, that's what Netflix does, right? They're trying in that space, they're trying to be the best, which I totally respect. And I think it's amazing that you can have a movie like this that, Traditionally, could come out in theaters and be this big spectacle, mm-hmm. drop into hundreds of households and be the you know watched in ninety countries at the same time, and everyone just be enjoy it and have this this thrill ride. I think there's. Still an appetite for theatrical releases, which I think Top Gun proved. I mean, they're making billions of dollars with a theatrical release. I think there's the pendulum always swings, right? Mm -hmm. Like it goes to this way, like, oh, I don't want to be near anybody. I have to stay away. Like, oh, this is really isolating. And I would rather experience this with people that I know and love. Let's go back to the cinema. So I think the the beauty of like a Netflix release is you're somewhere in the middle, meaning people have televisions sometimes that are almost as big as these screens. And so they they can, in certain instances, watch and experience it on a big screen in an immersive environment, but then they also, on the go, they can sit on the train and watch it on their phone if they so desire. I hope not. Please watch it on a big screen. It, It looks better that way. I met you in the middle. I saw it on a on a big screening. Uh, room, oh, great! Uh, but I was by
1: myself, which is not really the best way to see that. Not although, as fun. Although I bet it's the way most people are watching them, right? Probably, probably yeah. by themselves. A lot of times, mm-hmm. probably on a phone. So, did you have any itches? This was your second movie. Did you say, "Boy, this really is a spectacle. I wish we could show it to of hundreds of people at a time."
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, I, I got into the business because of my experiences as a kid watching theatrical movies, right? And, you know, there's something about sitting in a dark room with hundreds of like-minded people and, you know, you're up there immersed in this story. So, yes... Would I love for people to see it on a big screen? Sure, and a lot of people did. We did some advanced screenings. Netflix was amazing, actually. There were a number of audience screenings and advanced screenings, and so so people did get to see it on a big screen, and for them, you know, awesome. Uh, but then also, going into it, you know you're making it for Netflix, and that's amazing. The, op- the, the Also, the, in in their defense, this movie, the first one especially, probably wouldn't get made in the traditional studio system because of you know the cost, and it's like an original idea it's not based mm-hmm. on a comic book or a sequel and so to to have that kind of mean you know, a money spent on a movie that's an original idea on a non-existing IP, that's it, harder and harder to do in the traditional studio system. So Netflix took a chance and then, you know, a character like Tyler Inc. got legs and it's pretty, it's pretty incredible.
1: We talked about money last time. I think you were saying this is what you, I think you called it a mid-range action movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, What's the budget for that? And you're like 50 to a hundred million dollars. I assume with a sequel, everything gets more expensive, right? Chris gets more money. You get more money. The Russo mm-hmm. brothers
3: get more money, et cetera. Yeah, sequel. You know, everything is is stepped up a notch because they're expecting more of you. You know, your time commitment's more. Like the, the you know, all of this risk is, is factor is up. And you know, you're worth more based on the number of people or the eyeballs and how Netflix's metrics are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but based on the things that they perceive as valuable, they assign value to the, to the movie, to the players, and every everything does increase a little bit with as these sequels progress. And you guys have announced Extraction Three. So this is you went from.
1: Stunt guy to first-time director, and now you are firmly sort of committed to the Extraction unit. It seems like you're going to have spinoffs beyond Extraction 3 because you could add additional
3: characters. Is this is this sort of your life for the undetermined future? Uh, well, that's undetermined. I mean, you know, the, the it has been announced and spoken of, of a third mm-hmm. movie. Uh, I don't know what that is or what that's going to look like and, you know, if that will fall as the next thing for me. I, I don't know. I would. I love the Extraction universe. I love this character. And I've worked. A, you know, spent a lot. So it's many not years a given. It's not a given that you're making Extraction three. There it's is, not. It's not, a, it's not a given that one. I will be. Okay, there is right. going to be an Extraction three. Uh, you know, am I going to make it? I don't. I don't know. I have to like. You know, huddle up with the team and see what's the the best thing. Would I love to? Yeah. As a fan, I'd love to see the movie get made. As a director, I'd love the challenge of bringing this character to life in a bigger and more exciting way and continuing. You know, this story. But it, you know, you never know with these things. It's it's always it's always a discussion, right? You never, never know how it's going to pan out.
1: I could have sworn I saw that you were had committed to another movie for a non Netflix studio, but I couldn't find it. Did, did that yeah, I'm,
3: I'm doing yeah, I'm doing an Apple TV show uh, okay. in in uh, Montreal this uh, this fall. It's called the Last Frontier. Yeah, just doing a it's a, a different muscle to flex, right? Yeah. I haven't done stuff in television. And I think it'd be an interesting long form storytelling uh, challenge. So I'm looking forward to that. Do you
1: always want to be making big budget action, hardcore entertainments like that, or is there a a, a, a two person drama set in a, a cabin somewhere for you?
3: You know, I think a lot of it depends on the story. Like, I look at everything as does it intrigue me as a as a filmmaker and as a you know a human. Is the, is the story interesting, and then does it challenge me as a filmmaker? And I think at this stage. My sensibilities lean heavily towards action and, and big spectacle because I love watching it. I love creating it, and it seems to be like I have some sort of talent for it. But the, but you know, I would never uh, turn my nose up at a at a two-person drama in a cabin if the story was challenging to me as a director and it felt like something that would be pushing me and elevating my skill set. Because ultimately, I just want to keep getting better and become the best version. Of you know Sam Hargrave that I can be, and if that's a two-person you know drama in a cabin, great. When we talked before, you said uh, Jackie Chan was sort of your
1: inspiration. What was the movie that sort of set you off on on this path to stunt man and then making movies?
3: I mean, there was not one. There wasn't one single movie. I mean, there was there were things that were really impactful on my childhood. Two TV shows that just really got me doing crazy things that my poor mother had to you know try to keep me and my brother alive because we imitated all these things. Was the Zorro. Growing up, the Guy Williams, the D- Disney version of that, the serial, was amazing. It was re- reruns, right? I'm not, okay, I'm not yeah. Th- yeah, that yeah. old. My, my, my dad would, my granddad, uh, my mom's dad would record these things on a VHS and then ship them up to us. We didn't have cable um, at the time. So I'd watch those on VHS just over and over again. Love Zorro, love The Lone Ranger, again, reruns. And then when I was kind of old enough to watch my own kind of movies, Rambo... You know, uh, Sylvester Stallone inspired me. That was when I was like 16 years old. and I First watch. It was actually out of order. It was, was Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Was uh-huh. what I watched. That's what everyone saw w- for the first time,
1: basically, because not many yeah. people
3: saw the original Rambo. Yeah. So that was what I saw, and I was like, "Holy wow! That I want to be like that guy." So I, you know started working out like crazy doing, you know, all these Navy SEAL fitness videos. And <laughs> I was in the martial arts before that with Jackie Chan and, and, you know, Van Damme and Jet Li and Samuel Hung and all those amazing performers. But then when I saw Rambo First Blood, I was like, whoa, this is another, you know, American style action movie. And it really kind of solidified those, those movies in my mind.
1: I'll let you go. But first want to ask you about AI. You mentioned at the beginning, yeah. um, a lot of people are, are, Excited about AI. A lot of people are fearful about it. People imagine one day you hit a button and a movie comes out of a computer. Obviously, we're not there. Are you using it today in the way you make movies?
3: I haven't yet. I mean, I I sat and watched a, a colleague when we were in the editing process use uh ChatGPT GP, mm-hmm. uh, to, to do like a, you know, some word uh, document thing. It was amazing. Like it turned out and I challenged it because I was, it was new to me at the time and I was like, "Well, how about you write a, you know, a sonnet in iambic pentameter and tr- try that?" And within 3 sure. seconds it yeah. did. At like intermediate level. Like it wasn't a great, th- you know, thing. There was a lot of other great poets that way better, but it was it was eye-opening and i'm not you know it's it's kind of one of those you can stick your head in the sand and be like i don't want this to happen but it's happening like it's it's like you you've got to have to i think adapt and get used to ai being around for a while and see how can you use it in a way that is supportive to artists like i don't i'd be the last person to say i want ai to take everyone's jobs as an artist but i think what it will do is push people to be better. Like you'll have to be. You'll have to create something that's unique to you that cannot be done by an AI. It seems like in the near future the the most applicable
1: stuff is is some of the stuff you do, right? Is is amplifying special effects, allowing you to do more with the same budget. Mm-hmm. Um, have, have you been exploring how you might be able to use it to sort of make a scene that much better or that much cheaper so you can do more stuff?
3: I haven't. You know, I, I've, I haven't really. I've seen, again, just video clips of people using it. And that's my the extent of my research. Like, I mm-hmm. haven't called companies and said But I've seen it. And the, the capabilities and the potential for making, you know, these kind of action movies even better, I think, is fascinating. And that, that would be the best case scenario or the use case that I would investigate would be how do you take what we do you know, real action and enhance it in a way that then makes it seem even more lifelike and real without, you know, d- going too deeply into the the CG enhancement. I mean, not CG enhancement, but replacements. Cause mm-hmm. I think it's still, but, but Hey, who knows? Like I said, there, there's, there's some amazing technology that is already starting to kind of fool the, the human eye and like voice recognition and changing like, it's the wild west. And in ten years this conversation could be a moot point and absolutely ridiculous in hindsight. But I still think humans are gonna want some sort of human connection with what's on screen.
1: Real Sam Hargrave speaking to me on a computer. Thanks for thanks for taking time. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very it. much. Appreciate, appreciate you. It. Okay. Sam, that's super fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks again to Jelani and thanks again to Jolie Myers who's dropped in to help us out for these shows as well delighted to have her on board. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.